there's this place, a place where we dive and delve into the wonders of our surroundings, where the law is consilience, a jumping together of knowledge, forming a bridge that strongly connects the sciences, the arts, the humanities, a place where natural systems and human systems coexist in harmony, where connections are sought between humans and nature, humans and humans, nature and nature, and yes, a place where land, the living layers of earth that is, is an equal member of the community with rights, just like humans. In this special place, the sense of wonder is our sustenance. You've just arrived at the land health ecosystem. So welcome to our land health ecosystem. And we are here to talk about some of the aspects of something that's that, that frequently, especially in, in Pennsylvania, um, you, you can't help but seeing it in the news, in the newspapers, on TV, um, just kind of like, it. and, and as, as the summer wears on, you're just gonna hear more and more about it. And it's this, whether you like it or not, it's this charismatic, bright species called the spotted lanternfly. And we will get into a little discussion of what this, thing is, what this insect is, and, but, but before we, and, and so in general, if you don't know what the spotted lanternfly is, it's, 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 a, it's an invader from Asia. It's a, it's a uh, and we will show images a little bit later, but it's, a, um, it's, it's something that's called a leaf hopper form of insect. Um, it can both hop and fly, um, and it is kind of wreaking havoc on the, uh, on the ecosystem it includes native plants, non-native plants. Um, by the way, lots of our non-native plants are our food crops. And it's, uh, it's basically a sap sucker. So it, um, you won't get bitten by this thing, but it has like a proboscis, which butterflies have, um, you know, and hummingbirds sort of have, where it kind of just can, uh, it, can get it, it, it can get a part of its body into a trunk or into a stem and it can then suck out really the, the lifeblood of, of, of a plant, which is in technical terms, it's its phloem. In non-technical terms, it's its sap. But the sweet stuff that goes up and down the trunks of trees and stems of plants into the leaves, into the roots, you know, plants have the ability to manufacture their own food. They basically make sugar through the miracle of photosynthesis where they take um, the, the sunlight energy and use that energy to convert two plentiful um, uh, compounds, H2O or water and CO2, carbon dioxide, which a lot of people, as we all know, um, are affected as, when it's in its gaseous form um, as a greenhouse gas. And combining, the, combining carbon dioxide and water with, uh, with the energy from the sun, the, uh, you know, a plant is, is kind of miraculously able to convert that into a couple of other products, um, namely glucose, which is a which is like a carbohydrate with um, which which has a carbon, a hydrogen, and an oxygen makeup. I think it's C11H22O11, but uh, but it's sugar. It's simple sugar. And then um, plants do us a big favor through the um, the excess that they produce, and that's just plain old O2 or oxygen. So. Thanks to plants, we are alive. Um, but it's but it's that glucose um, in a liquid form. That's really plants are the only organisms that are able to feed themselves. 
So they basically manufacture their own food. Go figure. We can't do that. Everything we eat, whether we're whether we love to only eat meat or we don't eat any meat at all, we are all plant eaters because we're eating like without plants, there there'd be no other organisms, um, you know, on on, on which um, food chains are built. So so it's that it's that glucose in liquid form that gets that gets spread throughout the entire plant that this sap sucking um, insect has the ability to extract and thereby it has the ability to either damage or even kill um, like a lot of plants. So that's, that's what's going on and we'll talk more about that in detail. Um, but before you would get into a discussion on, a, on something like you know, this bug from Asia, it, it's very helpful to kind of talk about um, a couple of terms, actually three terms. You know, what does the word native mean? What does the word non-native mean? And then also, what does the word invasive mean? And so, not much that we cover in, in, in situations like this at Land Health. Um, we're much more about getting an understanding of systems than we are about technical definitions. And so, nothing I'm going to share with you is a technical definition where I'm going to cite a textbook. Um, it's more or less my own definition based on years of being an ecologist and studying this stuff and observing it um, and, 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 and giving you my, my point of view on what these things are. Because they really, they're really, I don't believe there really is a hard um, term definition for any of them um, because they're, as, as, as I discuss them a little bit, you'll see that there's, they're kind of relative terms. So if you're thinking about like an, a species that is either native or non-native, um, you might also think about what separates something from being native or non-native. And a good way to think about that is that the globe or our planet is made up of 70 or so percent water, you know, so mostly oceans. And floating in those oceans essentially um, are, are different islands. And seven of those islands are big things called continents and then you have oodles and oodles of other islands. And so the oceans do an effective job of defining, of basically laying the groundwork with a few exceptions of what would be native to an area. So something that would be truly native to an area, another way of looking at it is it's endemic to the place where it originated, um, you could, AKA its island. Now remember North America is connected to South America and that whole combination, you could call that whole thing like one big huge island. Um, and uh, so, so, that's what, so that's what native would be. Non-native is something that makes its way to another place where it was not endemic. It did not, it did not evolve there. It got there through other means. And so, um, you know, so an, a non-technical way of thinking about that is it's an island hopper. So, um, you know, if something is able to get from the island of Europe and Asia, Eurasia, over to the island of North America, it's in, a, it's in effect hopped from, you know, one continent several thousand miles away across the Atlantic Ocean um, to, another, to another island, even though it's a huge landmass. And so for the most part, with the exception of some, you know, birds that can fly, you know, like thousands of miles and they literally could, you know, go from a continent to another continent, some fish species migrate far distances and it's possible that, you know, some kind of a parasite or something that on the fish's back could then 
catch a ride and, and arrive in a distant place that it wasn't endemic to. So sometimes nature makes for, you know, um, island hopping, for lack of a better way of putting it. But for the most part, most of that, most of that invasion or, non, or, or, or moving of non-natives um, to, to new areas is, came about after there was intercontinental travel, which started with, with ships. And so it's very common now that whether there's intention or not, lots and lots and lots of species have made it from Asia or Europe over to the United States. Um, and they, they got there by way of being like stuck on a boat, meaning like literally they could have been stuck to the back of a boat because some things have the ability to do that, like a zebra mussel. Um, can stick itself to a boat, and that boat can even be outside, out of water for a while, and it can, and it, and it can, it could be wherever that boat goes. Um, that's where that zebra mussel goes. Um, and then also, like you know, the ballast and shifts. Um, a lot of stuff gets gets tossed in there. Seeds, small organisms. So ships inadvertently have transported many, many um, organisms from microscopic levels all the way to um, to you know to larger levels, and uh, Basically, those things kind of like, you know, inadvertently hijacked a ride from, you know, from wherever they were endemic to, to a new place. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of how the idea of, of just non, like, I won't yet necessarily call it invasion. I guess it's generally speaking, it's an invasion from one place um, to, to, an, to another, but I don't want to confuse that yet with this word of invasiveness. Um, but, but, that's, but, but that's often what happens. Also, um, you know, there's been a, a fascination, you know, once nations could, could travel um, across oceans and trade with one another, um, there's always been a fascination of what's, you know, what's somewhere else, what would be considered exotic. And so if you've ever uh, been to Bartram's garden, um, John Bartram and William Bartram were father and son. They were like um, early botanists who, um, who, were, who settled in Philadelphia and you know, John Bartram was fascinated with, with, um, with bringing plants from Europe over to the United States, just like the king of Europe, I think, uh, of England at that time, was fascinated by having Bartram send some cool specimens from the United States across the ocean back, back to England um, for, you know, again, for, for enjoyment, for wonder. And, um, but if you've ever heard of the Norway maple and you have one growing in your backyard or in your local forest, um, you know, if it's a Norway maple, it's probably not from around here, but you know, that, that can literally be traced to Philadelphia. John Bartram brought over Norway maples, grew them out at Bartram's garden, um, probably handed them out to buddies like Ben Franklin and others. Um, by the way, he named a plant after Ben Franklin, it's called the Franklinia. Um, and nor they never thought about invasiveness, but lo and behold, um, the Norway maple is a tough, tough tree it likes our climate. And as it was planted in different places, those whirly bird looking seeds were able to flutter all over the place. And then Norway maples invaded our forests. And in a lot of cases, um, outcompeted our local sugar maple, for instance. So, um, you know, so that's, so, so things got here sometimes on purpose and sometimes not on purpose, but we totally now have this cosmopolitan environment and if you don't, you know, if you're not aware of where things come from, you might not ever know that it's something like an Asian earthworm is really from Asia and that Pennsylvania doesn't even normally have earthworms in its soil. It's not supposed to. Um, the only reason we have an abundance is because they, pro 
you could easily see if somebody brings a plant from Asia, there could be a worm in its soil, or you know, could a worm get you know, or two get in the bottom of a ship? Absolutely. So we have this cosmopolitan environment where um, we have lots and lots of of plants and animals that inhabit our land, and they're not endemic to our land. And then for convenient time um, kind of marking, um, a lot of people say that you know when when Europe Europeans colonized, you know, first came to the United, uh, to what was not yet the United States, but to, to North America, that's really the time that you started thinking about natives and in terms of species and non-natives. So, um, so that's, that's a distinction between native and non-native. And then you have this word that gets used lots and lots and lots, and the word is invasive. And in general, invasive does not necessarily refer to a, a, um, whether a, a species is native or non-native. So invasive is really, is kind of like the word sounds, like it, 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 it's, it's something that invades and takes over. So if a plant, which isn't you know, you know, from a certain area, makes its way into a new area, and then at the expense of most of the other species that, are, that normally would grow there, kind of takes over, that would be called having an invasive tendency. So the plant that does that, it could be a non-native invasive. And if you've ever driven um, to New York City on the New Jersey Turnpike, and when you get close to New York City, you're surrounded by fields of tall grass, otherwise known as Phragmites australis, which is called, also called common reed. But it's this huge 10 to 15 foot reed that grows in, in, in wetlands, which is what the New Jersey Meadowlands basically um, is a system of and that's a European huge grass that that has the ability to take over wet areas it's slightly salt tolerant so in in, um, in places that get you know a little bit of saline it can still take those conditions so it does really really well in estuaries in places where kind of river systems and freshwater start to meet up with tidal systems and, and ocean water so Phragmites is able to grow both in the fresh part of that and, um, and some of the lightly salty part of that. And so it has this ability to just say, hey, I'm taking over. But you're probably all also familiar with common cattails. Cattails can be equally as invasive in places as Phragmites or common reed, but cattails are from the United States. So they're, they're, they're local to, to, to Pennsylvania. So cattails can be, in, they, they could totally, you, you put a, a shallow pond somewhere and you don't watch what's going on there, the whole thing could just literally, you put all, you put like, you know, eight species of plants there. If you don't watch what you're doing, um, cattails that you didn't even plant because the cattail, when it kind of falls apart, it, it, it's like fluffy seeds flying all over the place. You know, you, dig, you, you make a wet hole in your backyard, you will get cattails. The, the stuff is just gonna blow in. So the cattails can move out all your other plants that you put in there. They're not non-native, they're from here, but, they're, but they're, they certainly are invasive. So invasive, um, you know, th that's what invasive re re refers to, kind of that, that, that ability to take over. And so, um, you know, there's this, if you, if you register all that, and, then, and, and you start saying like, you know, native, non-native, um, invasive, you know, lots of people feel good about, like, about categorizing things. So a lot of people, the first question is, is that good or is that bad? You know, you know natives, they're good, right? Um, when I be, first became an ecologist, I was just flat out, you know what, if it's not native, um, I get rid of it. 
Um, I, I'm not at all of that mind, you know, at, at all right now. Um, you know, other people are like, you know, non-native, bad, invasive, that's bad, you know, like right off the bat. It's not necessarily, it's more of an emotional um, decision or, or, or belief than necessarily a scientific belief. That when you start asking the question, is something that's non-native, is it, is it good or is it bad? Um, is it both? That's where you get in all kinds of discussion, including when we get in, when we talk a little bit in a, in a few about the spotted lanternfly. You know, is it, is, um, you know, when you think about the, the word native, it's also a relative term in that, you know, like, like what does native truly mean, even if it's, even if it's endemic to like the Eastern United States. Um, Land Health has a plant nursery, and we say we grow native plants. Um, but we, we grow a lot of plants that are really good in meadow environments and sunny, grassy environments without trees that would shade things out. And, and if, you, if you go anywhere to any plant nursery and, and they grow natives, you're gonna see like all these different species of native plants that they grow that are really good for sunny meadow environments. But in, but in reality, the, a lot of those plants, they're not necessarily truly native to Pennsylvania. A lot of these meadow species, they, they're from Ohio, maybe. They are, you know, they're endemic to Ohio, and they maybe are not endemic to Pennsylvania. They're endemic to Wisconsin. Um, the, the, our bugs and animals recognize them because they're, they're close enough to species we have here, or some of the same animals that we have here have evolved to, to like, you know, eat them or use them for habitat you know, a couple states away, but, you know, you know, but there are a lot of things like th that are, that are they're, you know, where does, where does something become native and no longer non-native? A good example of that is if there's a beautiful tree called bald cypress. It's, it looks like it's, it's basically in the pine family. It's not an evergreen, even though it has needles. Um, it's, it's a beautiful tree, um, but come fall, it's green needles, which are very soft. They turn orange and then they fall off. And so for, this, for the winter, just like any deciduous tree, this conifer, this pine-related plant, um, you know, grows with, sits there without leaves until the, until the following spring. Well, what do you think about bald cypress in Pennsylvania? You see it in a lot of places. We grow it at our nursery. People have it on their property. Um, New York City, right outside the uh, Brooklyn Botanical Garden, you have this beautiful row of um, bald cypress planted there. It's not native to New York. So bald cypress, it generally grows as far north as Delaware. There's like a Pocomoke River which flows into the Chesapeake. Um, and that's about the line where, um, at least as of maybe 10 years ago, bald cypress would be native to. So if you bring that plant from Delaware into Pennsylvania, are you, are you bringing in an invader? Are you, bringing in a, are you truly bringing in a non-native? You know, you know, what's the answer to that? And so that, by itself could stimulate a lot of discussion. But if you take it even further than that, well, what's going on with global warming right now? Like any, any statistic that you look at shows clear things happening um, and, and that there's a pattern. You know, we, we are definitely experiencing warmer temperatures. We're definitely experiencing rising sea level and things like that. So you have these other conditions. Um, and so with global, when, when global temperatures change and change kind of more quickly than, than otherwise expected, they cause species to migrate whether they want to or not. So something like lobsters, by the way, they're heading north. It's getting too warm where they are. 
and, and they're leaving Boston Harbor um, and they're moving closer to Maine. Not that they're not in Maine, but they're, 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 they're walking slowly north. And um, so what's with that? It's getting too warm for them. So if they stay where the, where the ocean is getting too warm, they're not gonna make it there. So they're literally walking their way north. And luckily for them, at the moment they can. You know, some, like a frog, it can only hop so far and you know if it, if it reaches a suburban development that's just mostly asphalt and stuff that frog might not be able to migrate north so if so if plants and animals are migrating north due to due to um climate warming are they or does that make them invaders does that make them native and then not native to wherever they're going into like you know like, again what's what's the answer to something like that but bald cypress you know chances are on its own, it's moved north from the Pocomoke region because it has, you know, it has seeds and stuff, um, you know, like whether we bring it or not, you know, so you get into all these, you know, really cool gray areas of like, well, what, what really is native? What really is non-native? And, um, you know, and, and, you know, as a plant that's from North Carolina, put in Pennsylvania, is that truly non-native or, or not? You know, so, so it, it almost begs more questions, you know, than, than hardcore answers. Um, but you can also, you know, look at things like, okay, is, you know, are there beneficial aspects? And by that stretch, you know, you can say that lots of our plants, for instance, or animals that are native, um, they grew up in, 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 in native ecosystems. And if similar ecosystems happen to be a few states away, it's probably not causing crazy, crazy turmoil because, because a lot of the aspects of that whole ecosystem are present. And what I mean by that, the, the distinction, what, what gives a non-native the ability to really thrive in an area is the fact that it, it's, it's native to China, it finds its way to the United States, and all of a sudden, it doesn't have any predators. All of a sudden, it doesn't have any competition. And so like, you know, so a plant that would get eaten by a bunch of species um, in China can grow, but it's kept in check by the other species. It comes to the United States, and, and it's like, wow, I'm basically at the same latitude. Climate's pretty similar, um, but but I don't have the same competition that that, that that I have over in China. I can do really well here, and so you've seen that. Like the Norway rat, where's that from? It's from Norway. Does quite well in the United States. Asian earthworms, um, chestnut blight, a tiny little fungus um, that that, um, that was brought to the Bronx Zoo in 1904 on, when they when they thought it would be a good idea to have Chinese chestnuts at the zoo. And this fungus, which does not hurt the Chinese chestnut, got on our American chestnut and wiped out what was called the redwood of, of the east. The, 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 by far the largest tree in, in our forests got wiped out by a tiny little fungus pest that is not a pest to the Chinese chestnut, but it had no immunity in, in the United States. And, it, and literally billions of that tree just became extinct because of what happened there. So, um, you know, so that's, that's like the, the, the world of an, an invasion, invasion, native, non-native. It's a really like rich um, set of discussions that you can have. Um, and that kind of just, you know, set, you know, sets the, uh, sets the tone. Um, so if you happen to be watching, um, you can, uh, we can, um, Bridget has a couple uh images of this thing that's called the spotted lanternfly that if she's if she's able to, to share a screen we can put up um, and by the way we're doing these podcasts 
and my thinking on, on podcasts are to make them as, as, like, as sensory oriented as possible and go back to the old radio days. So whether we get our images up or not, um, the spotted lanternfly, it has, it has a variety of life stages or life cycles. Um, and uh, but when it's in its adult form, which is we'll probably get to start seeing that like next month um, in July, um, you know, it, it, it has a, a red color to it that's as bright as a freshly molted male cardinal. I mean, it's just flat out gorgeous shade of red. And, um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, it has black spots, a tan body, and an underside that's just as bright, bright red. Um, but, uh, and Bridget, I, can, I, I will just check in with you. Do you is, it, is that, are you able to get that up? Yep, I can get them up. Okay, so let's, let, let's just, uh, for those who are looking in, um, so there's that tannish body um, with the spots that give it its name. If you keep that image up there for a second, look at its anatomy. Um, does it look like it can hop? And does it look like it can fly? And you know, maybe it, it hopefully it, it it has powerful back legs under those wings. Um, so it it it, ha it 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 absolutely has the ability to hop. Um, and uh, you know, there's there's things like leaf hoppers and um, and aphids that, that are kind of in that in that family. Um, so and and also until it gets it's into its adult stage, it basically gets around you know through hopping. And there it looks like it's on a nice piece of local Wissahickon schist with some lichens on it too. Um, so that, so, um, but it also is a pretty decent flyer. Um, so it, it, it knows how to get around both, you know, just kind of like on the ground. It's a little bit clunky, but um, meaning it's not like an adept flyer like a dragonfly, which can really buzz all around and hit speeds of 30 miles an hour, um, but, it, but it can do okay. So, what other, um, let's get some other looks at it, um, just to get a, an appreciation for this specimen. So that's the other pic I have of it, but I guess we can go over also what it looks like younger. So yeah, the, I mean, yeah, if you, some of those images you shared with me, if you have any of them, it would be cool to put up. Yep. Oh, there it is. So here's what one of the egg masses looks like. And on, to me, I wouldn't even have noticed. It it looks like it's just something that's growing on the tree, but it really is their egg masses. It, that's it's not, it hasn't, if my screen is like everyone else, it, it did not shift beyond um, that adult lantern fly. Oh, so, uh, can you see it now? Um, So if whether whether we can end up showing oh here comes some uh, we're gonna looks like we're gonna get to see what an egg mass looks like okay sorry about that and I also have images of them as juveniles here so they kind of look they still have like the legs they look kind of similar okay so I'm gonna assume that I'm in the same boat as others, and 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 and, and I'm just still seeing. Oh, we're still getting our technical legs. So I'm just seeing the list of all the images we have, but they're they're not uh, they're not showing up on my screen. Um, 
So fight, and by the way, when I started this out, we, um, we, I'm calling this a teaser because we're gonna, we're, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the lantern fly and then on some of the uh, really cool um, connective already, like experiences um, that, that I want us to discuss, that's gonna be more of the subject for, for next week. But um, okay, well here, okay, so this image that you see now, if you're seeing what I'm seeing, this tiny little um, form is one of its earlier stages of life. It has several different metamorphoses that take place before it goes from an egg to an adult. And you might, you might be seeing these right now. Um, and I will tell you that, you know, when we start getting into like the discussion of, is it good to kill these things? Is it not? Um, I will put it out there that like, I'm not a killer of, of things if, if I can help it. Um, and I haven't ever, I, I have to say, I've never squashed a lanternfly, even though people feel like they're doing their patriotic duty to do that. And I feel like the god of lanternflies heard me. And in my own property, that image you see, you can times that by thousands and thousands. They're all over my trees. They're all over my plants. They're all over. You might think that from a distance, they look like ants crawling on your trees, or maybe a little spider until you look closely that they just have six legs. But man, they are just everywhere. Um, and, they, and they came, they were first spotted in Pennsylvania in 2014. Um, they probably got here before that. You know, usually it, it takes a while for something to get going. But they've been, they've been making their way throughout Eastern Pennsylvania and some other states. Um, and just, there's just no stopping them. So that's what the little, uh, that's what the cute little critter looks like. Um, but why don't we, um, you know, leave it at that? Because um, I thought it'd be cool to, like, like that's, that's your background to natives, invasives. And here's what is clearly, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a bug that originated in China. It actually invaded parts of Korea um, before it invaded the United States. It now can safely be said that it has invaded. It's affecting um, all kinds of native species and it's affecting all kinds of crops. It's also um, going head to head with, with, with something it recognizes quite well, which is, is its favorite host plant, which is called the tree of heaven, which is, a, which is from Asia. And so the tree of heaven is an invader that made its way to the United States over a hundred years ago. And now this, this bug is probably rejoicing because it's, it's, uh, it's finding its Asian co-evolutionary partner here in the United States, um, which also um, you know, leads to some cool discussion. So, um, and, and that's where I want to kind of leave, leave us for some discussion on this thing. And then next week, kind of pick up on that. And then again, get into the more, you know, ethereal philosophical discussions about, are these lanternflies good? Are they bad? Um, should we be killing them? Should we be praying to them? What should we be doing with these things? Um, so, um, so that said, if, uh, if anyone would have any comments or questions, um, thanks for dealing with our technical challenges and stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and, and tuning in this long. So I um, just wanna see uh, um, if, if uh, Bridget has anything and or anybody on the, on the uh, podcast. Can, I, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, just a, a simple question about the tree of heaven and the lanternfly. Is <clears throat> it destructive to the tree of heaven when it finds it? 
or does the tree of heaven provide a symbiotic relationship with it? Um, and thanks, Bill. That's an awesome question um, because it, so, so that, that, that's, the answer to that is just, it's an ecosystem answer. It's an ecological answer. Um, in, in China, tree of heaven grows native to China and, and the spotted lanternfly um, is native to China and its favorite place to, to lay eggs and its favorite place to grow up, its favorite place to eat is the tree of heaven. But scientists are, are pretty, are basically agree that it, the, um, it, will, it will harm the tree. So it's not a symbiotic relationship um, like some co-evolutionary relationships are. Um, the, the tree helps the bug, the bug does not help the tree. It's, uh, it's a, I don't, the, the only thing it might, like I don't know, it, it, it maybe in effect it could be a, a, a pollinator of the tree. The tree okay. is, um, the tree, tree of heaven is a tree that has male species, it has males and females. Some trees are, are bisexual where they have both, both sexes on, on the same tree, but there's male trees of heaven and, and female. And so, um, you know, so it might, you know, it, it might, um, it, it doesn't necessarily figure to because it's a sap sucker. So it's not a pollen eater, but it's possible if it makes its way from one tree to another. So chances are that the, the, um, the insect gives no benefit to the tree. The tree gives a lot of benefit to the insect. But in China, the, um, you know, lots of other things eat, eat, the, uh, eat the spotted lanternfly. Right. Um, and so it, you know, it, 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 like basically nature's taking, taking place the way it's intended to where it's going to take some chunks out of the tree of heaven. It's not going to be, it's not going to kill it. They're not, they're, they're because they're just not overabundant insects and, it, and, and they're kind of kept in check by other predators. Um, so, um, so that's, you know, that's the answer to that. The tree of heaven, very interestingly, that, that I, I that we'll definitely get into a little bit more next week. Cause I also have this awesome article about the tree of heaven. It's really like a, it's a, it's an essay. that's just quite beautiful. And that's how I wanted to end when we discuss this stuff next week, um, but the, but the tree of heaven is is considered a noxious weed. So that means it's not just non-native; it's considered not a not a good plant. Um, I beg to differ on that, and that's what we'll get into next week. Um, you know, if you have a street that and and the only tree on your street is a tree of heaven, um, you might not want that noxious weed cut down because somebody tells you it's an invader. Um, it's giving you shade. It's sucking up water. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's doing, it's doing a lot of beneficial things, but, but, um, but the tree of heaven has been like, you know, it, it's, it's invaded forests and guess what? You, you are bound to find loads and loads of spotted lanternflies now on the tree of heaven. And so, because they, they're not specific where they will, they, they can, the reason why, the reason why right now everybody's so alarmed by the, um, the spread of spotted lanternfly is it's a gen it's still a generalist. It, its favorite tree is tree of heaven, but it can get along without the tree of heaven. It just likes it the best. It's the most effective host for it. Um, you know, so um, but it's kind of interesting that that you know this invasive insect is now killing the invasive tree. Um, and so uh, you know, which also gets into the discussion. You know, nobody intended that because nobody nobody really wanted to be overrun by either one. Um, but scientists, there's some scientists that specialize in coming up with what's called biological pest controls. And as an ecologist, I've always questioned that. Um, you know, there's, 
if you've ever heard of another invasive noxious, noxious weed called purple loosestrife, rather than spraying chemicals on it, one, th there's something called a loosestrife beetle. Purple loosestrife's from Asia, the loosestrife beetle. And the people that, that use it, they brought over and breeded um, beetles from Asia, let them loose in, so these non-native beetles, they've let loose in wetlands in like, including like, you know, in Fairmount Park in, in, near Concourse Lake where there's all this purple loosestrife. And it's quite effective. The beetles eat the purple loosestrife and, and they sometimes can totally get rid of it. Now, the scientists that are doing that are saying, that's okay because it's only gonna eat the purple loosestrife. Now, how do they know that that beetle's not gonna mutate and be able to like eat cattails, which wouldn't be such a bad thing, or eat something like, you know, sweet flag, which is, which is a key wetland species or, or um, hibiscus or something like that. So it's, I really think you're taking a risk when you do biological controls and, um, and uh, you know, um, in, in this case, um, spotted lanternfly as being a biological control of the tree of heaven, but, um, but, it's, but, uh, but, you, but it makes you think about, is that so, you know, should we be doing that with other things intentionally? And then I saw, I, I think it was Brian shot across, a, a note came across my screen, another great question. So who's eating the spotted lanternfly? So to date, some spiders are eating it, and, and praying mantises, which will eat anything that comes near them. If you ever want to like enter, entertain yourself, because um, right now they're hopping around anywhere, the city, yards and stuff. And by, and by the way, there's praying mantises that are local, meaning like Carolina mantids are native to this area and Chinese mantids are not. Um, there's differences um, b between the two. Um, either one is a voracious predator with amazing eyesight and amazing reflexes. It's kind of to me, it's, it's another one of those miracle bugs. Um, but if you find one on a, uh, on, you know, hanging out on one of your plants, sit there for a while. If you're lucky enough to have like binoculars that you can kind of focus in like from not that far away or there's a, there's a, mo a monocular that you can get, keeps you entertained for hours and you're just in your garden because you could be seven feet away from something but you can still focus on a little tiny bug. You'll just watch anything, whether it's a yellow jacket, a spider, anything that comes within, within jaws reach of that praying mantis um, is fair game. And so, you know, these clunky flies, lantern flies, um, you know, praying mantises will eat just about anything. But what they've also found is a lot of, um, they actually did a test, <laughs> they did a chicken test. And they, because um, chickens apparently will eat almost any kind of bug out there and chickens don't they won't eat them. They won't they, like so. They're thinking that not a lot of birds are eating them. Um, so, but right now they haven't done full studies, um, and 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 some people are, are reporting that they are seeing some birds eat them. I can tell you they're 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 loaded with protein and good omega three fatty acids, which are essential to the growth. I mean, like like you know like will if birds adapt soon, they're you know they're they're. they're they're decent flyers, but they're pretty easy to catch. That's why humans are able to squash them in their adult stage. They're, they're not like, you know, they don't get away that easily like some other bugs do. Um, but, but like, you know, birds, birds love caterpillars. They're again, like caterpillars are really good for you. They'd be good for humans too, unless if they have a toxin that, that's, that's not good. Um, and cause they're, you know, they're, they're loaded with, with a lot of the essential um, nutrients that we, that we all need birds included. So if, if some birds start evolving, you know, that's something that could kind of take care of these things. But right now, it doesn't look like they have a whole lot of predators. And, um, and so, but, but remember, 
They were only first spotted in 2014. In the evolutionary world, um, 2014 to 2020 is like not even a blip in time. It's nothing. But you know, you give another 10 years, you know, robins are birds. What do they love to eat? Earthworms. Where those it's called the American robin, right? It's a it's it's a, it's an American species endemic to just about every contiguous United States. Um, and it eats Asian earthworms with a frenzy. Um, so, you know, when robins were here, there were no earth, Asian earthworms. So they're able to eat them. Um, so it really, it really depends on, on, on species. Um, it's, I believe it's too early to tell whether you're going to get a host of new predators um, because these things haven't been around in our ecosystems that long. Other um, comments, questions? Um, Tasia also had a great question. She asked if we brought natural predators from Asia that eat the lanternfly, would it have negative effects here? Yeah, so that's that, that's that question. It's a good question. That's that question of biological control. And, you know, in my opinion, I wouldn't do it because it's, because it's, um, it's, you, you, once you bring a non-native to, to a new area, um, you, you, you're definitely playing a game of like, of chance. It's Russian roulette kind of a play. And um, so if, if while that, while, if, so if, if you bring an Asian natural predator of the spotted lanternfly to the United States, and that's able to eat all the lanternflies up, then, you're, then it's a race against time. And in the time it's gonna take for these, you know, lanternflies keep proliferating, but then maybe this other bug or, you know, it's probably another larger bug that you're bringing over. If you start bringing in like a rodent or, um, or a bird or something, then you got another mess on your hands. If you know what a, what a European um, starling is, um, European starlings, somebody brought like 10 or 100, I forget what the number is, you know, I think to New York from Europe. And now they're like this disease laden bird and they're like all over the place. They spread all over. United States from like just being brought over by like, you know, no more than like a handful of these things. So you don't, you know, I wouldn't be bringing a big species over, but even if you bring like a predatory insect that can eat the spotted lanternfly, or maybe it like, ideally it would love its egg sac. So it could, it could, it could eat it before it ever like gets, you know, gets going. Um, well, you get all the time that it's here living able to eat. If that has a successful mutation where it can then, where it learns how to eat something other than the lanternfly, then again, you, you have a major problem on your hands. So it's a great question, um, but you know, my, my, I have a cautionary answer on that. Another thing that I'll maybe touch on a little bit more next week, but, to, but that lends itself to, you know, again, is this, is this bug good or bad? You know, well, sounds like it's pretty bad. It's eating our food crops, that's not cool. Might be good if it's getting rid of the tree of heaven to some people, that might be viewed as a good thing. Um, and not a lot of our other animals yet seem to be eating it. However, if you, if you do any kind of quick Google search on, you know, you type in um, population state of insects, you will find that insects are in a mass freefall decline, just like so many other species. We're yeah. going through mass extinction as we speak. Um, it's brought about courtesy of humans. And so, but, you know, a lot of people are like, ah, insects are going extinct. Awesome. I don't have to no. get bitten by mosquitoes as no. much. No. Um, but it's not... If, if, if we lose our insects, we lose our entire food chains. It just, yeah. They will just literally collapse like a deck yeah. of cards, like a house of cards kind of a thing. Insects are, at the, are, are 
they, they, they support so many other animals. And so if we lose our insects, then we're gonna, then, then you're gonna lose your frogs. You're gonna lose a ton of birds. You just, you're basically gonna, it's just basically gonna cause a catastrophe. So like, you know, should we be wholesale getting rid of a certain bug right now? You know, when we're losing insects, I, you know, again, it's a question that, that all these things could have great discussion points. Bill, did you have something I, that I interrupted or anyone else? Other um, comments or questions about these things or, or, or also I'm curious if anyone has any personal experiences. Like um, I didn't even, like in the beginning of this, of this spring or a little later in the spring and I started seeing these things, I'm like, hey, what are they? They, have, they, they kind of look like aph a little bit slightly bigger aphids hopping on my trees and plants and stuff. And then, then, then I looked and I, and I looked them up and it's like, oh, duh. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that I tell people like, you really sure you want to squash that beautiful bug? Um, you know, I, again, I did not have them on my property nearly, nearly, nearly as much one, just one year ago. Yeah, I remember last year when I was at school in Philly, um, they were just everywhere on the sidewalk. It was just like overnight. They just, all the little red little bugs were just everywhere. And it seemed like <laughs> I hadn't seen them before when they just came out of nowhere. Yeah, and it's making me laugh because um, I, there's, there's, a, there's a place, uh, so we're talking like Bridget and I are both at Drexel and along uh, 32nd Street, there's this- That's exactly, yeah, that's where. Yeah, there's this new building that has a daycare center at the bottom and it's, and it's, 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 it's you know, cool uh, yuppie apartments with a good gym and stuff above that. I forget what it's called. And you would walk past there and obviously people were taking pride. You would just see squashed bugs on the building and on the sidewalk all over these beautiful red splotches um, because people were obviously able to catch the bug and someone told them they probably thought it was a good thing to do. But yeah, um, um, University City is one of the places in Philadelphia that for some reason got hit harder last year than a lot of other places. They were just all over our campus on some of the streets. Other musings, we got a, we got a few minutes left. Um, and, uh, you know, by the way, next, next week we're going to get into more issues of, of, of the relationship with this thing called the Tree of Heaven. And, um, and, ha and, and, and definitely human relationships with the tree of heaven. And then, um, and, then I, and then I want us to get into, you know, more of that discussion about life, you know, like, is it, is like, you know, what, what do we do about this stuff? And like, you know, like, should we, you know, like, if, if humans are the ones that kind of um, brought these circumstances about, should we be the ones then like frantically trying to kill all these things that came over only because we set the circumstances that were favorable to them. It's like, it's not like, um, you know, it's not like they evilly came over here. If a ship takes you here against your wishes, you know, we've done, you know, that's, you know, we all know humans do that at all levels, unfortunately. And, um, you know, so here we are like with all these different species. Um, and then, and then humans also have that, that, you know, that's that instantaneous kind of personality where like, if they don't like something, they just want it, they want it changed, you know, right then and there. And um, it's not that easy. Usually it's not that easy a thing to do. Or if you do it easily, then it comes, you know, say you spray a chemical all over the place, you might get rid of what you wanted to get rid of, but then you just added all these chemicals back that are, are gonna make their way into our water systems. Is that what they're doing with the food crops in terms of trying to combat this spraying? Yeah. They're, Right now, I think the primary um, the, the, the primary uh, effort on the part on the part of people who are in agriculture 
Um, when something invades, they spray. They just spray it. Spray yeah. it. Yeah. And that's, you know, and again, that's, that's, a, that's a huge, huge problem. Um, you, know, uh, you know, at another one of these podcasts, we'll, we'll most definitely talk about the plight of monarch butterflies. And, you know, monarchs co-evolved with something called a milkweed, which is a benefit, at least in the United States, it's a very beneficial weed. It's a native species. And far, you know, agriculture people all across our heartland spray something called broadleaf herbicide. Does a really good job killing um, plants with broad leaves. Grasses, um, you know, that it might be like corn that it won't get affected. And so like in, white, in, in trying to wipe out all these, all these pest weeds um, and, and, and yeah. let, the, you know, let the soybean grow and the, and the corn grow, they end up killing everything. And so the milkweed dies and monarchs will only lay their eggs on, on milkweeds. They will, and, and the caterpillars, they, um, unlike other things, they will only eat milkweed. So you basically stop the migration that they do. You stop their life cycle dead in its tracks by, by chemicals. So I will say to everyone, thanks for tuning in. Um, tune yeah. in next week and we promise our technical um, Adeptness will be uh, will, will will be improved on 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 today.